The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Give all I have just to know you. Um, I think I think I have someone that's going to read. Um, Steve, come on up. Uh, turn with me to John chapter 7, and uh, this is a, a big shift in, the, in, in just the, the chronology uh, of Jesus' ministry in this gospel, and, uh, and it's a pretty exciting shift. Jesus is now making his final um, move into Jerusalem, um, and, uh, and things get very difficult as far as uh, persecution, insult, despised, and rejected. These things we see depicted in this text. So John chapter 7, Steve's going to read this for us. We're going to go 1 to 13. Thank you, brother. After this, Jesus went into Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see you works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it and that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time is not fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. All right, so, um, man, we see in this passage that Jesus faced a lot of rejection. He, felt, he faced rejection from uh, the, uh, the leadership of his nation, those that had uh, power and influence politically, socially, spiritually, religiously, and they had an agenda crystal clear, and they've been stating this along the way, but here we, we see it again that their agenda was to do what? To kill him. To kill him. So as I mentioned, from this chapter forward, John shows Jesus as the suffering servant, as the suffering Messiah. Uh, depicts this, which is, which is fully demonstrated or depicted in Isaiah 53. And so what's going on in the Gospel of John is... We see these signs. Other gospels refer to them as miracles. Jesus literally, I mean, John literally speaks to them as sign or signpost, pointing specifically to the deity of Christ, referencing in these, uh, in these miracles or signs uh, the, 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 prophe- the prophecies that would point to Jesus as the coming Messiah. And so he is, he is true. John, by 
you know, by, by the Holy Spirit's intention is pointing to the deity of Christ, constantly pointing to the deity of, de- deity of Christ. And here, as this shift, this momentum shifts now from Galilee and the ministry that transpires in Galilee, his home, his home region, Nazareth being a part of that, Capernaum being kind of the headquarters of their Galilean ministry, now everything after he moves from Galilee is now shifting to the, the center point of God's redemptive plan. The, the, you know, we're going up to Jerusalem. But there's some curious um, pieces that, uh, that we find here in the text. So let's, uh, let's process through it together. Verse 13, now verse 1 to 13, excuse me. It says this, after this, uh, speaking of previous pieces that have been discussed through chapter 6, Jesus went about in Galilee. Now, what we find is, if we, with further um, study, that um, he is talking about a 12-month period. Um, as we harmonize with the other Gospels, look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we realize that John is, is so emphatic in what the Holy Spirit is doing through him in pointing to Jesus' deity that he kind of has these moments where he just, it's a day later, but then he jumps in, in months. And in this case, he jumps a year. Twelve months is the time frame that he's speaking of here, that he goes about in Galilee. Um, and as John moves on, I just want to mention to you some of the things that transpired during that, those 12 months, according to the other Gospels. So Jesus sent out a demon out of a girl. He feeds the 4,000, obviously the 5,000 uh, we referenced in John. Uh, religious leaders are asked for a sign in the sky. Uh, Jesus restores the sight to a blind man. Uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, that experience with uh, James, Peter, and John uh, that Jesus has as he is transformed before them. Uh, Jesus heals a demon-possessed boy at the heels of that experience at the foothill of that mountain. Uh, Jesus twice predicts his death. And then the disciples, on the heels of this, um, in this journey, argue about who's going to be the greatest. Okay, so that's in the equation, this 12-month uh, time frame and in this journey. So it says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Th- that's a, that's a, a significant amount of time when you think about his ministry being about three years. The other thing we need to understand is that in the context of Jesus' ministry, there was four Passovers. So Jesus' ministry inaugurates at the beginning of his ministry, there's a Passover. A year later, there's another Passover. Another year, two years into his ministry, a Passover. And then we know that his, his ministry culminates at the cross on Passover, being the fourth Passover. So now what's happened is, in this 12-month time period, is the third Passover that's uh, during his ministry has happened, and now it's uh, it, he's uh, what's being talked about is another festival, and it's the festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles. Okay, so we see that as we read on the text, he says, uh, well, he goes on to say he would not go about in Judea, which is the the region that Jerusalem, Bethlehem, uh, Bethany's in, uh, south to uh, to Galilee. Because the Jews, speaking of the, in, in John here, it's talking about the Jewish leaders, uh, the men of, of influence, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the Pharisees and those guys, um, were seeking to kill him. So um, this provokes a question. As I'm walking through the text, I'm going to kind of dialogue through some thoughts and questions, and then we're going to process kind of the intention or what we believe can be the, the thematical elements that are here, crucial to this text. And you know, for me, the question is, does our allegiance to God make us immune to danger or temptation or testing or trial? 
I mean, based on what we see in Jesus' life, what we see later on in Paul's life, do we believe that our allegiance to God makes us immune to danger? No, absolutely not, right? And Jesus said, you'll finish what I've, you know, I've started, that you're to follow me in this journey, and I'm going to be an example to you so you, you will know how to walk through these moments by my experience and examples. He's tasted everything so that he might be our high priest that we've experienced or walked through or will walk through. But it doesn't. It doesn't mean that if, if, we, are, if we are fully committed to Christ and we are, we were, we're walking in obedience, it almost, I think the New Testament almost declares that we should expect these things, that this is, this is a part of the road, the narrow path, and the road marked with sufferings, that this is, this is a part of the Christian life. In fact, I think what the, the New Testament de- firmly declares that these things are actually a grace, a gift given to us in order to be a catalyst of our witness and a catalyst of our growth or sanctification or maturity. That that's what it says. And, and, and let me reference a passage just to emphasize that particular component um, if you want to turn with me, Romans chapter 5 um, has much to say about this, and it's interesting how it depicts this. So you would imagine that it's a pretty exciting thing. It's, a pretty, it's something worthy of celebration and rejoicing that God has justified the sinner. And that I'm, 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 I'm in that camp, right? Like that God has rescued me, set the captives free. And, uh, and that he's justified me. Some will say, you know, just as if I've never sinned. Like he, is, he, is, he has wiped the slate clean. He's made me righteous, not in, a, not in a fickle status, but in a permanent way. Like he, is, he, is, he has claimed all our faults. Christ died in our place. And so this is what it's describing uh, here in chapter 5. In reference, you know, to everything that's been spoken of in the first four chapters, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace, get this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, speaking of Jesus, we have also obtained access, again, by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of the glory of God. Now, that's, that's, that's something to be super excited about that our sins have been atoned for, that, um, that our ticket's been punched to an eternal presence with the Father, that Christ has shared his, 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 his sonship with us. We've been adopted. But not only that, his inheritance with us. And so what's, what more could we rejoice in than that? And the text goes on to say this, more than that. What's it talking about? What's it going to talk about? Verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing, convinced of, believing, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. The NIV says doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his Holy Spirit into our hearts. This love has been given, like literally been poured into us by his spirit. See, Jesus, you know, we see in Romans chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, it says, for the joy set before him, talking about the, what the cross would accomplish in our lives, salvation, 
For the joy set for before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And so he models for us in this that our focus is on what suffering produces. What It produces a witness, a testimony. It, it produces character and maturity, as James 1, 2 through 4 says. And that, that, that it's actually the catalyst of development, and it is the instrument that God uses in order to demonstrate the evidence of his life, love, and liberty in our lives. It's our witness. And, you know, so often in, in Western American Christian culture, we think that our witness is that we're nice people. We're just, we're really sweet people, you know, um, but, but, but truly the New Testament, and that's not, that's not void of the Christian witness. We should be gentle and kind and loving and self-sacrificing, and we should, you know, bless those who curse us and forgive those who, who persecute us and, and, uh, and our enemies. We should pray for them. You know, the, this should be the posture of us as believers but, but we should also be speaking the truth in love. We should also have an attitude that is different when we face the struggles and the painful moments of life. And I don't know about you, but that's not common to my nature. I, I don't, I'm prone more to complain. I'm, I'm prone more to go, why me? I'm prone more to, to be, you know, but does our attitude in that moment matter? Count it pure joy, my brothers. Rejoice in your sufferings. It says that Jesus learned something through his sufferings. Obe- obedience. He learned obedience through suffering. And we, we do too. And so is, I want to ask a question this morning. Is being insulted, persecuted, despised, and rejected, is that a part of the Christian life? Is, is, is that a place where God wants us to respond differently than the world does. How do we get that done? The Holy Spirit. It's by his power and his presence, right? And we're going to talk about that because here's the thing. Moses comes to a burning bush, right? And he's confronted not only with the holiness of God, but the word of God, right? And in that moment, he is so aware of his own frailty and weakness that he basically says, that's great, God, but not me. Because he's so, he's taken account of what he can't do. But what God wants us to do is to walk in a mode that doesn't, doesn't decide uh, how or when or what or if based on what I can or can't do, but what he can and will do, right? I mean, in Luke chapter 18, verse 27, Jesus says, look, what's, what's impossible for man is possible for God. And what Jesus' ministry, especially the Sermon on the Mount, was, was meant to help us to understand is, I mean, he basically depicts righteousness to a standard that's beyond humanity's ability to ever achieve, ever. And in chapter 5, he ends with, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, mature, but like complete. And so what Jesus' ministry was, was, was doing to, for us was saying, look, you can't do it, but I can. Your righteousness will never satisfy the 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 potential to be in God's presence, right? You're, you can't die for the sins of the world, but I can. And I can impute to you my resume, my righteousness. And guys, you know, I think so often we sell short the cross. We sell short the fact that the cross was enough to make you blameless, holy, righteous, and pure. 
And it's, it's us. It's, it, it's not that that hasn't been done. It's that we have yet to, to believe that the, that the cross achieved that. Because we're called saints. Yet we still sin. And, and that finds its origin, its source, its, its genesis in disbelief. And so as God is continually convincing us by the power of the Holy Spirit that the one who calls us is faithful and he will do it, speaking of making us like him, then our confidence is not in the flesh. Our constant confidence is not in what I can or can't do. My confidence, my faith, my trust is that he can and he will. Okay? And so, and, and, and it's not to do anything and everything that I want done. It's to, get, it's to get everything and anything done that he wants done. And so then we submit to his will. We submit to his kingdom. And, and here's the other thing that we're going to see in the context of this passage. You know, once we are brought, brought and bought from darkness to light, we are not, no longer a part of the kingdom of darkness. We are part of this marvelous light, this kingdom of light. And so we, like Jesus, are... I don't want to say a stench to the world, but we, we, we are, we're, we expose through the way that we live, we expose darkness. And that, that, that creates, listen, as long as you're, we're in agreement about everything, there's not a whole lot of conflict. But the moment that my life and your life don't jive and my paradigm and your paradigm don't mix, that can create some conflict, right? Unequally yoked. Like, I mean, so... So what, what we see here is that the light of the world came into a dark context and the darkness either had two choices, to, to agree with the light about their, their darkness and submit to, their, to, to his mercy and grace or to, to put the light out. And that's what humanity chose to do. Let's, let's turn this light off because it's making me feel bad about me instead of letting that light invade our lives and purify and cleanse me so that I now experience the righteousness of God and can abide in his presence and experience all the attributes of who God is, like love and peace. And this is what Christ came. So it's not surprising that everybody hated or disbelieved him. Listen, this is where it gets real practical. His own family mocked him in this moment. It states that, not only did they not believe him, in this moment as we get to this text, we see that they literally become the voice of the enemy and they mock him and say, why don't you go show yourself off so that, you know, all your followers will trust or believe or follow you. You know, not speaking of the 12. So let's move to verse 2. It says, now the feast, uh, the, Jewish, the Jews' feast of booth was at hand. So again, this happened six months after Passover. This is the, and this is interesting. This is the most this is the, the Jews loved the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booth. Now, what is this? This is basically them kind of doing what they, their forefathers did in the Sinai. They had to live in, in tents. And so it's a way that they can kind of um, relate to that experience and remember God's faithfulness and his provision. And so the intention of it, much like the Seder meal for Passover and, mu and much like the Lord's Supper for the cross, is meant that they would never forget God's faithfulness. But what it turned into was an annual camping trip within the Jewish culture. It turned into a party, a play day. Like they got, the reason they loved this particular festival so much is it marked one. It was between September and October, Passover being between March and April. 
And this is six months later. It marked the harvest, right? It was part of the harvest. So it's all, it's all, the, you know, all the harvest is coming in. That's, that's grounds for celebration. But now everybody comes to Jerusalem, builds these pseudo tents, and then lives in them. And it becomes this glorious camping trip. But what, 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 uh, what, what historians have told us is they've lost sight of the meaning of it. Much like we've lost sight of the meaning of Christmas or the meaning of Easter. Or we've lost, like we've turned maybe Memorial Day or even the 4th of July into a party rather than, we turned it into a holiday rather than a holy day. And, uh, and, and we've forgotten what it's meant to remind us of. So this is what's going on, in, and Jesus doesn't want to be any part of that. And it's not because of his will or agenda. It's because he is, he is meticulously doing what? Following the Father's blueprint to perfection. And he says, I do nothing apart from the Father. I, everything I do, I do according to the, to the Father's will. So one of the things we see in this text that, that we need, that's confronting our lives as we declare Christ as Lord is who's calling the shots? Who gets to determine the what? And maybe this text helps us understand the when because God might, might be saying, yeah, this is where you're going, but it's not now and it's not today and it's not here. And so, you know, part of I think what really de- de- declares to the world that Jesus is Lord of my life. What does that word mean? He's Caesar. He's king. Like he gets to determine. I mean, I, I always wonder how many days did the disciples get to decide where they were going when they were following Jesus? How many, how many decisions did they make about where, you know, where this goes? And it's interesting because the whole time Jesus is in constant prayer with the father, determining the steps that he's meant to take because this, this mission is being, is being rolled out in order for the redemption of the world. And keep in mind that this is the pinnacle of everything the prophets have been talking about. This all comes to fruition on Calvary. And Jesus is walking it out according to the Father's blueprint. So what does that say for us? Do, you know, let, let, me, let me just do it in the text as we kind of go through it. So they're, they're going to this feast, this festival. They're going to this big camp, camp out, this Jewish camp out in, in, in Jerusalem in verse 3. So his brothers said to him, now, keep in mind, Jesus, we're told in the text quite, quite a few times, Jesus had four brothers. Two of them are New Testament authors. All of them came after the resurrection to believe Jesus to be the Christ. But prior to his resurrection, did not believe in him, right? Here, mock him, right? And, uh, and so we, we know that, there, that James was one of his brothers, New Testament writer uh, of a letter. Jude, uh, also known as Judas, uh, that, that name didn't really... You know, it kind of lost its blitz going into the <laughs> after after you know that Passover. But then then it's Joseph and Simon. So we had four brothers. Mary, you know, despite what Catholics say, I mean, Mary was not a virgin. You know, after her her birth, Jesus was the firstborn, right? She, he was born of a virgin. But then she, he not only had brothers, Mary and Joseph not only had boys, but it says that he had sisters, plural. So Jesus lived in a family um, that included at least four brothers and sisters, plural. And these brothers, in verse 3, says, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea. Now this is in a, in, in a, in a, a connotation of mockery that, or sarcasm, that, that your disciples may also may see the works you are doing. He's not talking about the 12 here. 
He's talking about there's a larger group of people that would consider them followers of Christ at this point. Verse 4, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. Was that his hope? Was that his agenda? We've talked about that. If, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, this is my conclusion after really praying through and studying through this, is that they were basically saying, look, if you want to be an actor, go to L.A. You want to be, in, you, you want to be on Broadway, go to New York. You know, like, like go, go show yourself to the world. Go make, make, make fame of yourself, right? And, and it, as if it was some sort of popularity contest that Jesus, that this is what he was doing. So really, who's the voice behind their voice? It's the enemy, right? Because it's the same enemy that spoke to him in the desert and said, hey, how about prematurely you throw your life down here? You know, I'll give you the world, right? I mean, he was, he was always trying to confront the father's blueprint and his design and his timeline. I mean, we see it at the cross. We see it right at the cross, right? How many people, we find out that every single, like, category of people that are at the cross, Roman soldiers, um, the Pharisees, the thieves on the cross, the bystanders, all four of those categories say the same thing to him. Come down now and we'll believe in you. You know, you saved, your, you, you saved others, now save yourself. Who's, who's moving those mouths? See, we, we have to understand this is the enemy is, is here trying to speak deception, tempting him to find. And what is he, what is he tempting him to do? An easier route uh, to thwart the Father's will. And, and here's what I want to say. Guys, are these, these guys are his brothers. Look, look in my perception, if anybody's going to understand and believe when Messiah shows up, it's going to be the Pharisees and the, the, the ones that have studied the law and the, the scribes. Like these guys are going to be the ones that goes, oh, well, obviously this is the guy, right? But, but they reject him out of envy, out of pride. Um, they reject him, which Jesus knew would happen and came anyway, by the way. And, uh, and, and they're the ones that have motive and means to actually do it. Has any, have, have any of you ever had someone, and maybe there are some, that, that somebody that wants to kill you and has the authority, has the power and the means to do it, this is the environment that Jesus was living in. But, but you know, that would be tough. I, I can look around. I know that some of us have been in this envi- that type of environment. But let, let's, let's add to that that your brothers are mocking you and saying, go make yourself famous because we don't believe you are who you say you are. And they've seen... They've seen it all. They've seen his adolescence. They've seen, they've seen it. They were there for the changing water to wine. But there's, and so here's my point in this. It's like, this is obviously the enemy. We have to be careful. We have to have, we, we have to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That there can be, I mean, Peter, Peter says to him, you know, you're not going to Jerusalem. And, and, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Did Peter have poor motive there? No, he's seeking to protect him, but his but his, his, his intentions were completely opposite to God's. In this case, they're just being mean. But, the, but, but it's the enemy that's speaking in this moment. We see this in Job chapter 2, that Job's wife, riddled with pain and loss, says, are you holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. The very thing that God wanted, the enemy wanted Job to state or to, to, to come to, his wife actually says it. Look, there... Why is it that we often 
say the meanest things to the people that we're most intimate with. And we can be, the, we can be so nice to strangers. You know, it, we've got to be careful that on two sides, one, the recipient side, that we don't let the enemy. Do you think Jesus took this to heart? I don't think he did. I think he knew where it was coming from. And he knew the heart of the Father, and he knew it was a lie. He knew that it came from the Father of lies, and he had found an instrument. But when we don't have that perspective, we can be crushed. Because think about it. Don't you think the enemy wants to, to grab someone that is intimate to you in order to speak words that might manipulate or motivate you or hurt you? But if it's not true, you know, can we, can we resign to if it's not true, then we know where it comes from. This is not of the Father. This is, this, is, this is The agenda here is to steal, kill, and destroy. And I can reject that. The truth sets us free. I can reject that. And, and we see that that's where these, th- these guys are. This, is what the, 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 this could possibly be James. So verse 5, it says, For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. Whenever Jesus is talking about his time or his hour, He's talking about his sacrifice, his giving of his life. He says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. What does he mean by that? Again, here he's talking about, um, so you can do anything because that's your agenda. I have the Father's agenda, and I have to be faithful to that. Let me, let me read this to you because I thought they, they, they did this very well and, and very succinctly. Jesus told his brothers that they could use time as if it was theirs to squander, basing their decisions about time only on immediate opportunities and showing no apparent desire to fit into God's plan. And so how do you treat time? Is it, you know, one of the things that Lordship declares is that, is that I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. That there's a, there's a glorious exchange that we all would celebrate is that God now has ownership. It's Lordship. And so it's no longer my time. You know, when we use words like I'm killing time, it's a tragedy or I'm wasting time. I mean, like, so I think one of the things that this, this calls us to think about is, you know, are we honoring God with, Jesus said the days are evil. Like, are we honoring God with our, with his time that he's entrusted to us? Is it not something else that we're meant to steward? Whether it be car, home, relationships, the treasured things, people, the spiritual gifts being given. But the time that God has entrusted to us, is it not, as, as we declare him, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Is it not, hey, Lord, today, what is your plans? Because I think a lot of times what, what disappoints us is that we start walking in our will and our plans, and those things aren't realized, and it becomes a very discouraging, or we're wrestling with God on the agenda for the day rather than just believing. And here's what we believe, believing that his way is better, that his heart is, and that he knows and that, and that he's, he's leading us. And, and does that mean that the, that, that the road that's, that's marked out for us that day, the race that we're running for that day, is it marked with suffering or danger or persecution or insult or tragedy? In fact, it probably, if we have accurate expectations, it is. It is. But, but David embraced a moment with a giant and believed that his God was bigger than the giant. 
right? He had greater confidence in what God was going to do and did do than he did in his own ability or lack of. And so it's a time thing. I love this. I put this on a slide so we could read it together. Listen to what this says. We can keep from living recklessly by honoring God's timing in our lives. Sometimes obedience involves risk. Sometimes it involves caution. We must determine to wholeheartedly cooperate with God's plans or God's spirit. Therefore, we must not be driven by fear, impulsiveness, ignorance, or anxiety. And I thought this was good. Sometimes the wisest, most difficult decision is the decision to wait for God's timing. And man, that that does not resonate with our sinful nature because we're impatient by default, right? But we believe that as, as depicted in amen, we, de- we believe that that's, that's glorious, that's better, that's ideal to submit. But, but the challenge for us this morning and, and the example that Jesus sets for us is that he doesn't, even when it comes to Lazarus' death, he waits two days. Journeys for another, Lazarus is in a tomb for four days dead. But that's the father's plan. And we don't have to understand it to obey it. That's, the, that's kind of our challenge is that we want to, I, mean, I don't think Abraham understood what Isaac's sacrifice meant or how it would look like before he jumped on the opportunity to just be radically obedient to what God had called him to do. And so that's what faith looks like. But it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. In fact, if you look at Jesus in chapter 7 of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, he, when he talks about the narrow path, does he call it easy or hard? And the wide road that leads to destruction, does he call that one easy or hard? That's the easy path. This is the hard one. And it's a road marked with suffering. But that suffering has intention and purpose and benefit and potential. It, it, is, it is the catalyst of our witness. It is the, it's the environment of maturity. It's where the seed gets rooted into our hearts and gets demonstrated through our lives. It's where the fruit gets, 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 gets seen and experienced. And so it becomes the evidence of the glorious God that dwells within us. Does that make sense? It becomes the evidence. But it's when, listen, it says, Philippians 2.14 says, do not argue or complain about anything that you might stand out or shine like stars in the universe holding out to the word of life. Like, you know, one of the things that that, that make us uh, a, a witness is our attitude. Our attitude as it relates to suffering. Because if we believe that, that's, listen, do you think Jesus thought that all that he was going through. First of all, did Jesus know he was, what he was going to face coming here? And did he come anyway? I mean, did he, did he already see the blueprint of every prophet and what humanity did to the prophet that spoke on God's behalf? Every single one faced persecution, death, stoning. I mean, look at Paul's life. It's marked by this. So wait a second. Is that abundant life? And the answer is yes. And this is why. Because God's spirit abides with us. What did God give Israel in the desert? Did he give them a smooth journey? No. In the desert, and this is a picture of the New Testament life, the, 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 the new creation, is there were battles, right? There was a lack of water, a lack of food. But what did he give them? His presence. His presence was with this is what he's promised to give us when we face the storms, the tragedies, the pains, the trials, the rejections, the demises of life is he promises to be with us. When he says, Peter, go out to deep waters and let, let down your net for a catch. Yes, there's a catch, but, but there's a catch. 
Because here's the deal. What he is revealing to him is not a boatload of fish, but the holiness of the Jesus that's in the boat with him. He's with us. But trust me that we will walk through moments of suffering and trial. And, it's, and then in that moment, are you going to count it all joy? Not because of the trial, but because what the trial produces and, and, the, and the witness that it generates. You know one of the things we learned in Acts earlier on when we were studying on Wednesday night? That the word witness is very, very, very closely related to the word martyr. Without martyrdom, there's no witness. Without, in our witness, there will always be sacrifice. There will always be suffering. Did Jesus not model that for us? Does Paul, 2 Corinthians 11, do we not see a list of things that Paul endures? And how do we reconcile that with that we have, Jesus said, I have come to, to, that you may have life and life to the full. Here's how we reconcile this. Is what God came to give us is himself abiding inside of us. Where's the kingdom, outside or inside? Inside of us, in your midst, Jesus says. So now the, the, the glorious life, the light of the world is meant to be demonstrated through our life, but it's in a context of desert and darkness. Does that make sense? You're aliens in a foreign land. You're on a battlefield, folks, and the enemy had, is the prince of the air, but God is the kingdom that abides in our hearts, and greater is he that is in us than he is in the world. We are more than conquerors in Christ, and the one that has come and redeemed us, he's planted his kingdom himself in us, in order to demonstrate that kingdom through us, right? So it's, it's, guys, we focus too much on the best life now. Like we focus way too much on, on, on the circumstances rather than the glorious work that God is doing in our life. And that's what makes it abundant because we have peace in the midst of chaos. We have love in the midst of hatred, right? We have joy in the midst of absolute despair, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And what that means is best, blessed are those who mourn the sin that surrounds you, and maybe even in you, but that in the midst of your mourning, you have a Holy Spirit that dwells inside of you that at the same exact time is comforting you. Isn't that glorious? And then, then what it is is that the demonstration of that kingdom, that powerful presence, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The demonstration of that is, is what makes the witness. And it's what turns the tide. It's what transforms the, the broken heart. I mean, what, what transformed our heart was the suffering of Christ and what it demonstrated in the Father's love, right? And so when we count it all joy, my brothers, when we face trials, and we, not because we like to suffer, but because we like what suffering does to us and through us. And that is the overarching thematic element of the new testament that is the that is the witness of christ to us when he says come follow me he is not saying come follow me to a bed of roses easy path and everything's going to be great and i'm going to i'm going to keep you from danger no i'm going to be with you in the danger listen did did ask answer the, the quick question did daniel go in a lion's den did shadrach meshach and abednego go in a fiery furnace did david face a giant was god with them we saw it, right? Looked in. Nebuchadnezzar looks in, and there's a fourth person in there. They walk out. They don't even smell like smoke. Only God can do these things. But listen, 
This is the greatest work that he's done. He has made it possible through the work of the cross that he might be with us to sustain us, to be the rock and the refuge in the midst of the storms that are promised to us. In, in Matthew chapter 7, it talks about the, the house built on the rock versus the sand. You look at that illustration, and basically both people that have heard the word face the same circumstances, the same, same problems, the same storms. Answer a question for me. Is life filled with storms? Does everybody get storms? But, but see, God wants through his power. His, this isn't something that we do. It's just like the burning bush thing. It's not something that we do. We don't have to take in. Because how many times have you said, love my enemies? And then it's practical in a moment where hatred is, is, is rising up in you and go, that's impossible right now for me. Pray for those who persecute me. Father, forgive them for they know not what. In the moment, like, you know, but, but Jesus says, Luke 18, 27, he says, what is impossible with, God, with man, impossible is possible with God. And he's talking about salvation, but then he's also talking about the fruit of salvation, which now is a spirit that has clothed you with power in order to be a, wit- a martyr, a witness. And our attitude towards those moments that, anybody in here not, never suffered, never gone through a storm, never been rejected, re- Guys, look, the world is not impressed when we act like they do. They're not impressed when we start complaining about it, talking about it, griping. and That's not impressive. And that's natural to us. And it's understandable even. But the supernatural work of the Spirit is to believe that God is doing something marvelous. And Jesus in this context endured, despised, and rejected knowing because he had his he had his mind focused on the goal. He was locked in to the mission, and he was going to be faithful to the Father throughout that entire process. So is, was it painful? In, in Christ's humanity, was it painful? What, did he get tired? Uh, you, we're going to face the limitations of our flesh. We're wrapped in it. But do we, do we understand that we've been given this surpassing power that's in us in order to achieve the very thing? Listen, God doesn't ever ask you to do something that he hasn't equipped you to do. And the, the equipping of that is we've been given the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the mind of Christ. All these things, all these gifts have come with the Spirit. So Jesus is saying my timetable is his timetable. And it goes on in verse 7. It says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that uh, testify it that its works are evil. So what is he saying here? Very quickly, he is saying, look, they don't hate you because you're, you're them. Right? You, you look like them. You act like them. You love what they love. Right? Romans 12, 2 says, be not conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. On the other side of being a living sacrifice, that's what worship is so that you might know what God's good, perfect, and pleasing will is. Look, we're, we're count, we, believers should be so counter natures, counter, ca- we're so ca- counter to the world that, we, that, it, that, it, that as we grow up in the Lord and we start to, to, to by the power of the Holy Spirit, obey these things, it's actually going to make people mad at us. They're not going to like us. They're, they're, they're going to persecute us. They're going to reject us. And if we have bought into a Christianity that's, you know, that's going to make my life easy, you've been lied to. Okay? But to make your life better, you haven't. 
because great, this glorious power that God has put in us makes this life abundant because the, your, your constant status is you're overwhelmed with love, joy, peace, patience, kind, as we abide in him and as we stay in his presence. And that's what sustains us in the storm, believing that his word is true, believing that that hope is something that God continues to brew through the the moments of obedience so that our hope grows. Is your hope over the the time of your walk with the Lord not grown and and, uh, your taste and desire for, for for, for, for what heaven will, you know, for God's presence in an eternal statement? will be but but until then we are called to be willing ambassadors and uh and and face these trials um with with an attitude that says god thank you for what you're doing in me and through me in these moments so that's why he says you know they hate me but they don't hate you because you're you're them verse eight you go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast. And when you read the text and study it through, basically what it's saying is, I am not going up to this feast until the Father says so. Some translations say yet. But, but what it's getting at is, I am not going up to this feast until the Father says so. And then this makes it perfectly clear, for my time has not yet fully come. What was Jesus' time based on? The Father's will, Right? So then going on, verse 9, after, this, uh, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, according to God's blueprint and timeline, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast. With what agenda? Well, verse 1 told us. And saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading people astray. And then, don't miss this, I'll reference this in just a minute. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly him. What keeps you from talking openly about Jesus? Is it the fear of man? Is it the fear of rejection? I, I, I kind of feel like that's what we see here depicted in this. So, so here are some thoughts as we conclude. This is some thoughts. So here is Jesus, perfect in his demonstration of the Father's heart, will and word, and he is rejected by his own family and those who ideally, who should recognize him and celebrate his presence, seeking an opportunity to kill him otherwise. The very ones that he has come to to sacrificially save, rescue, and redeem, patronize him and seek to crucify him. And does he go, you know what? I'm out. No, that's why the Christian life is marked by perseverance. And it's not, it's not something that we can do. It's something that he does. He continues to... I mean, have you ever felt like giving up in life, in, in what you're doing, in the Christian walk? Have you ever felt that? If you're walking with Christ, if you're walking through some of these moments, you're going to feel that, right? But, but it's the sustaining power of his presence. And, and, and what's, what's essential in those moments is that we get on our knees and we get in his word and we get in community. We, man, it's not good for man to be alone. We need to get around other believers. We need to confess our sins. We need to confess our weaknesses, boast, boast in them, in fact, and just and pray for one another. Look, when we come in here, this should be a, an edifying experience, right? This should be a place where we, we, you know, we're, we're on the same page. We know that suffering has purpose, but we know it's hard out there. We know it's a battlefield, not a playground. We know that it's, it's hard. We're living on enemy territory. We're ambassadors of a different kingdom. We know it's going to be hard. We've been told that. I've sent you out like sheep among 
wolves, right? Like we know this, right? And so when we come in here, this is where we build each other up. This is where we encourage each other. This is where we pray for each other. This is where we get in the word together. This is where we pray together, right? Because then as the sign says, going out the parking lot, now you're entering your mission field, right? Now, now it's, you know, I wrestled with battlefield because that's true, right? Because we need to keep that mindset that, look, there's going to be casualties, there, there's going to be pain. Like, and if we're trying to build a life that we think is the Christian life to avoid suffering and trial and painfulness, and then, guys, <laughs> you're, you will be immature. Let me give you a perfect example. Take a child that's in a home that the parents make everything in that child's life easy. They, they, they cover up all the pain. They, they, they bail them out of all the tragedy. They... they um, they, they make everything easy. They have, there's no responsibility. What happens to that child? Spoiled. Rotten, right? Like, I mean, there's no maturity there. You know, those that have walked through adversity, isn't it funny how that's a catalyst to maturity and character? Isn't it? We, we can see that true just in life, in, in children, that, that these things are actually good for us. And let me tell you, this is an interesting thing. The Bible actually says this. Two words are used when it comes to suffering. In 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 uh, in in First uh, Peter, chapter five, it calls suffering a grace, and it says it's the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Suffering, stand firm in it. Right? You can't do that without Him. And then the other thing it calls it, it, it calls it a gift. A gift. Now I don't know if that confronts your paradigm, but it, but but it does mine. But it's changing. Does that make sense? I'm changing because I don't often respond like I want to or, or should. But, but with the Father's help and with the, with, with the, the Word of God continuing to change my paradigm, I'm, I'm realizing that these are, these are, this is the spiritual gym of life. And God is instructing us. He is the great trainer, the Holy Spirit. And he's instructing us in truth in order to train us in godliness and holiness. Are you experiencing rejecting, rejection from others, from your family? You know, it breaks my heart. I mean, it, it really does. I mean, it, I, I experience rejection from my family, and it's spiritual for sure. Guys, Jesus said that's going to happen. He didn't, he didn't leave us guessing about this situation. He says, I come to bring the sword. And in that context, he says that this is going to be divisive because light has no fellowship with darkness. And it's going to cause this, 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 this conflict. But how we respond to that, that's our witness. That's, that's, that's the testimonial that, man, the, there's a God and he's in you. And he's showing himself faithful and true. Are you experiencing rejection from others, your family, the very ones you seek to love the most or we would perceive should love us the most? I mean, Jesus came to die and, and did it, as John 13 says, verse 1, he did it to the very end. He, he, he finished what he started knowing that the ones that he was dying for were going to kill him. Interesting, Jesus came to bring us home to the Father's love and presence, and they, or we, hated and rejected him. Hated and rejected him. Uh, just reference this, John 13, 1. It says, now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. So this is fast forward. Uh, you know, 
had come to depart from this world and to, and, and, to, and to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. We see the perseverance under trial and persecution. So could anyone have, have done it better? Could anyone have done this better? Well, the obvious the answer is no. Yet he was despised and rejected. We esteemed him not. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Okay, let me read Isaiah 53, 3 through 6. Listen to what it says. He was, this is written 700 years before Jesus walked the planet by, by a prophet. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one of whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he, Jesus, was born for our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That's what they determined. Oh, anyone that hangs on the cross is cursed. They, they, they said, well, obviously he's a sinner. <laughs> but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Surely wasn't for him. And with his stripes, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Man, sacrificial love never demonstrated in a more profound way. A couple of other thoughts. This should comfort us when, not if, we are rejected by those who, who, are seeking, who we are seeking to share the good news with of God's love and salvation. Another thought, I don't know if you uh, will ever be hated for your love for the Lord or your, your, um, your radical obedience to his will, but Jesus was. And he made these statements to us. John fifteen eighteen, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Why would Jesus say that? Preparing. I mean, we need, we need to hear this. We need to know that there's a forerunner that, is, that has gone before us and that he's tasted what we've We have a mediator before the Father that understands. In, um, in Matthew, this is Matthew 10, 22, it says this, and you will be hated, this is Jesus telling his disciples, by all for my name's sake, but, he, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 5, 11 through 12 says, Blessed are you when, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice and be glad. What? In what context? When you are reviled and persecuted and falsely accused, for your reward is great in heaven. And so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're in good company, right? And then finally, this passage. For this, this is 1 Peter 2. And listen to what this says. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, that's key. When mindful of God, one endures suffering while, I mean, sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now listen to what verse 21 says. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Why? Leaving you an example. Why? So that you might follow in his steps. Example in what? How to suffer. 
He committed no sin, neither was, he, was deceit found in his mouth. Speaking to Jesus. He was revi- when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But here's the key. But he, he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He deferred the judgment to God and continued the course of being faithful to, get to the Father's blueprint. A couple other thoughts. Jesus was doing the ultimate good, and did he suffer? Was he rejected? Absolutely. How did he respond? He persevered. And don't miss this. He persevered. He ran the race marked out for him. He set his gaze and fixed his heart on the Father and was a glorious example of, of complete and total obedience. Another thought. What about you? Look, it's obvious we can't do it, but he did. So here's the question. So what do we need in order to face the rejection um, and bless those who curse you and, and love those, uh, uh, you know, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and forgive those, uh, you know, to the standard in which you've been forgiven? How do we see that realized in our life? What do we need? We need Jesus. And what has he given us? He's given us his spirit, his very presence to empower us to see these things realized. We can't do it. You foolish Galatians, chapter 3 of Galatians says, you, 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 this was a work that God did to save you, and it's a work that he's going to do in order to continue to demonstrate himself through your life and grow you up. And so we need Jesus. Without the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, it's impossible. Jesus said what is impossible with man is possible with God. And he's talking about salvation. Jesus obeyed our Father to perfection, and they still rejected him and wanted to kill him. Let's remember that. Why do we expect a different response? Guys, and this is such an important piece. Why do we, when we're facing rejection, I mean, I, I, I think it's an obvious answer, but, but do we often feel when we're being rejected, when we're being insulted and persecuted and despised and rejected, these things that are depicted, like, I think oftentimes we feel like, man, I must be doing something wrong. Could it possibly be, based on what Scripture tells us, that we're actually doing something right? And maybe if we're not experiencing some of those things, and I'm not saying we go out and, you know, find them, but I'm saying God's faithful, right? So, like, but what I'm saying is if we're not experiencing some of those things, maybe, maybe, maybe we're not walking in his strength but our own, in his will and not our, in our own. You see what I'm saying? Like, don't believe that because life is hard that God's not good, right? Because you're going through trial and suffering, that, that, that this must be because I feel. And I'm saying take, take an accurate in investigation of your heart. Make sure, you know, you know confess your sin. That's, that's all in play here. But, but understand that, that it's going to be hard, but God is good. And he's with us and the kingdom abides in us. And we're more than conquerors because he's faithful and he's good. Few of us can relate to those with means and motives as influential as the Pharisees wanting to find and kill us. Yet our father's heart was orchestrating his most glorious mission in the midst of all of this hatred and rejection to make a way back to, the, to, to his heart and presence. And the reason uh, after writing that I, I thought was, guys, we need to remember that. We need to remember that there's, a, there's, a, there's an Easter on this other side of Good Friday when we're in the Good Fridays of life. We, we need to understand, like in the suffering moment, our faith actually br- breathes hope 
into that very moment in order for us to have an attitude that is our witness and evidence to the world. Does that make sense? That, that genuine faith actually believes that this is good and God's going to make it glorious and that, he's gonna, that every, every pain has a purpose. And, and, and we believe God to be glorious in that moment and to be faithful, to be with us. Have you ever experienced rejection? Jesus understands. He promised, that, he promised us that this was the way it would be. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. It is possible that if we entrust our lives to a faithful creator who judges justly, that God might use our lives to save others too. And we might, with the constant help of the Holy Spirit, finish what Jesus started. Have you ever been completely misrepresented or misunderstood? I want you to know that Jesus understands. Yet in this moment, was Jesus in the center of the Father's will? Yes. Often we feel like we have failed in similar circumstances. Why? And I... And I these are my thoughts. I just think that these might be the reasons that we have this, this perspective in that moment. I think these are good. We don't have an accurate picture or expectation for the believer's life. We're not following Jesus. Number two, we want to be, like, we want to be light more than we want to be faithful to the Father. Number three, the fear of rejection, like we see in verse 13. And it's, it's people-pleasing. That's at the heart of that. And we see in verse 13, yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Next point, we have not counted the cost. We haven't truly counted the cost of discipleship and following Jesus. Number, f- number five, we have still, we're still hanging on to our, our life and haven't truly exchanged it for his. See, the, the, but then my thought was, these thoughts could leave us feeling like the rich young ruler, overwhelmed and wanting to walk. But let's remember, God knows we can't do it, but he can. Let's remember that. Let's remember that God knows we can't do it, but he can. And what what needs to happen is we need to know we can't do it, and he can. That's what faith declares in those moments. That's That's what we declare. Did the father have a glorious plan for those who disbelieved and disobeyed, who wanted to kill his son? Did God have a plan for those people that wanted to kill his son? Yeah, his plan was to save them to rescue them back to his presence, to forgive them. He had planned to forgive them before they sinned, knowing exactly what they would do to him and his son. That's what grace and love looks like. This is what he was, and I finish up with these three points. This is what he was to demonstrate through our lives in the, and wants us to demonstrate through our lives in the midst of hatred and rejection. Love and grace. And that is only possible through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And you know who is... Tra- And you know who is transformed uh, the most when we go through these painful moments and are mindful of God? We are. We experience the sanctifying work. And here's my final point. I hope you remember this, that transformation is the evidence and sign to an unbelieving world. Ultimately, this was another sign in the Gospel of John. And it was basically pointing again to his deity that he was the suffering servant depicted in Isaiah 53 that would come and endure the pain and suffering, rejection and the despisement in order to rescue us from our brokenness. And in hindsight, it became very obvious. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to see life from your perspective, that we would walk according to your bidding and your will and your timetable that we would honor you 
uh, as living sacrifices, that we would no longer conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we might test and approve what your good, perfect, and pleasing will is, that we, Father, would uh, trust you, trust you to, to, to walk through the trials, the adversity, the pain, the trial of life, knowing, Father, knowing that you're with us, and that you'll bring us to the promised land, that you will give us the victories in the battles, that you will make us more like yourself in the process, and that we will be the evidence of your presence, your power, your goodness, love, and grace to those around us as we respond the way that you would have us to respond by the power and direction of the Holy Spirit. We thank you. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.